All right. Good morning, everyone. We're uh, we're a little shy attendance-wise because it's the picnic after the second service. They can probably hear me on the patio right now. So should I talk about Mary, uh, Mary and Martha, and who made the? <laughs> well, we are going to be taking a look at the house toffle text or the household code text yet again today. We finished. Uh, Looking at Ephesians, that's really probably the most thorough. Today we're going to be taking a look at Colossians, which uh, has less substance to it. Well, maybe substance is the wrong, less quantity to it, let's put it that way. And will maybe give us a slightly different flavor. And then we're going to move on, if we have time, which I think we will, to Titus, where Titus we're going to get an entirely different flavor, although we're going to see, again, some overlap in content. So we will begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so two things. Well, most all of you are turning to uh, chapter 3 of Colossians. We'll be starting... You know, I think we're actually going to do a little bit of skimming around. Just go to 3.1 for now. And if anyone knows how to run the air conditioning, I'm already sensing that it's, uh, it's a little bit of above my threshold. And that, that thing up there says it's 74 degrees, which my brain shuts down at about 78. So <laughs> getting on uncomfortably close. Thank you so much. And uh, All right, so what we're doing is the house toffle or house code text. I want to give you a little bit of context because, of course, these things don't just come out of the blue. We did the same in Ephesians where we looked at Paul laying out what we would call as Lutherans justification and sanctification. That is, we're justified in Christ Jesus, but we're also made new. And that calling, if you you remember in Ephesians, has to do with submitting to one another Yet, lest we misunderstand this as destroying the whole order of creation, that submission takes on the form, then, that follows the six chief vocations. Okay, do you remember what they are, these three pairs? You have husband and wife, there's two. Parents and children, there's the other two. And slaves and masters, or employee, employee, yeah, uh, employer, employee, right. So there's your six, or your three pairs. And we see that there's an economy uh, there. And, of course, we have we spent a great deal of time, so I'm not going to rehash it here, seeing how the very trinity itself, the equality of the persons in terms of their essence, but the economy of the persons in terms of how they work are written into the order of creation so that man, woman, and child are all equally human beings, equally redeemed by Christ, etc. But God calls us to a different economy or ordering here in this life, such that parents aren't called to obey children, but rather children, parents, and so on and so forth. So these are the theological underpinnings of all of this. And likewise, when we turn to Colossians 3, we're going to see, and I just want to read a little bit of this chapter before we get to where we want to be. If you look at 3 verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, you can see how this dovetails with Ephesians 2 where we are dead in our trespasses and sins until we are made alive by God through Christ Jesus. Here, a different take on that reality. If you have been raised with Christ, you already have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Which is interesting language, too, because we read in the early part of Romans that no one can seek after God. But here now, being raised from the dead, being made new... 
we are in fact called to seek. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, how could that be misunderstood? (laughs) Well, if you're already above with Christ, then anything here simply doesn't matter. And since you've already died, well then, what you're doing here on earth is already dead, and so it just doesn't matter. But that's not what Paul's going to teach. It's not where he goes. And now you can see the kind of logic that pushes his argument forward. Since you are dead, rather put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he names a whole bunch of things that are characteristics of the fallen human flesh. If we go to verse 10, it's mid-sentence. Paul writes, and have put on the new self. So he has just told us, put off the old self, it's dead. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So not conformed into the world and death, but conformed into God and life into the image of the creator. And look, Paul does a similar move, whereas in Ephesians it's be submissive to all. Here, in terms of our relationship to God in Christ Jesus, you see the essence or ontology argument. Here there is, verse 11, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so then what might be a false conclusion from that. Well, if there's no Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all, then the orders of creation must have melted away. In fact, we even see one of those mentioned when we talk about the slave. But Paul is then going to answer this by saying, no, incorrect. These things are, in fact, true, but that does not mean that the order of creation has thus been set aside or destroyed. Okay. So, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. This is all how it is to be, it's spelling out how it is to be made after the image of the Creator. So these, this parallels our gospel text for today. These are characteristics of God. And they are characteristics to which we are called. Continuing, middle of verse 13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right. Rather than destroy the order of creation and these vocations that God has written into creation, ironically, they are established. That's why Paul moves seamlessly then to verse 18 with language that will be familiar to you from our study in Ephesians 5 and 6. Wives, submit to your husbands. Same exact Greek word as is fitting in the Lord, and there is that call to see our vocations as being vocations in the Lord and means and modes through which we are serving Him. So we reflected on this from Ephesians, where 
the woman, the wife, is called to serve her man, her husband, not because of his worthiness, nor is she to submit relative to his worthiness, but outright in obedience to Christ. And then that is symmetrical for the husband. If we look at 19, husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, that does, again, it's implied, not stated outright here in this context, that the husband, too, loves his wife and is not harsh with her. The Greek there is actually embittered towards her, such that he is called to these things even if she is unworthy. And he is called to these things not conditioned upon her worthiness, but rather as absolute service to God. So again, we can view vocations in this siloed off way that I use myself first person because it's easier. I'm not particularly interested in how well my wife is doing her vocation. I'm interested in how well I am doing my vocation. My vocation is sacrifice and worship of Christ, and it's rendered unto Christ, thus to my wife. Okay? And then same way symmetrically for her. It's not based on my worthiness or unworthiness, but on her love for Christ, and thus that redounds in service to me. Okay? And those, I keep using the word service here. It would be more specific to use the verbs submit and love. Included here for husbands, do not be harsh or embittered with your wives. All right? So nothing particularly new here. It's just the second epistle in which Paul is going to cite these chief household vocations, the holy vocation of wife and husband. Now, before I move on, I do want to give pause if you have any questions, comments, reflections, if this jogged to mind anything from the previous weeks that was uh, of interest to you or troubling to you, feel free to wave a hand and we'll run a microphone to you. All right. So then we move rapidly. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Again, even the service of children is rendered to the Lord. And here, look at this language. I point this out from time to time. Here is the, when we see the word pleasing to the Lord in Scripture, we immediately see a twofold sense in which it's pleasing. Is it, let me use an analogy. Again, first person is just easier that way. On the worst possible day when my kids are absolutely misbehaving, where chicken nuggets have been thrown all over the minivan, and there's barbecue sauce stained on the seat, and they're not listening to me even though I've threatened to turn this car around several times. Okay, in what sense am I pleased with them? Am I pleased to have them as my children? Yes, absolutely. At their worst, I'm pleased to have them as my children. But am I pleased with them? No, not in that sense. (laughs) Very displeased. Need to do some corrections there. So you see we have these two senses of being pleased with our children. Well, the same is parallel with God, our Father. He is very much pleased to have us with his children. He has made us such in baptism, and that pleasure of his is irrevocable. And it doesn't matter how much we're misbehaving. He's made a promise and a pledge, and indeed he's made an ontological reality by sending his Holy Spirit into us and renewing us. So he is, in that sense, absolutely and always and unconditionally pleased to have us as his children. Only we ourselves are ones that can jeopardize that if and when we, as that prodigal son, forsake our sonship and walk away and leave. Even then, from that parable, we know what the Father's attitude is toward us. We know how he embraces us as sons the moment we return. But only we can put that aspect in jeopardy. God never will. 
But there is a secondary sense in which, as we conduct ourselves within our vocations, the scriptures say that God is pleased. Now, here in the second sense, when my kids are well-behaved, or when they do something self-sacrificing or admirable or above what I expected them to do, I am not only pleased to have them as my children, but I'm pleased with them in the second sense that, they're, that they've done something praiseworthy. Does that make sense? And so here we can see that language of uh, children obeying parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, we would grossly confuse things if we made this somehow conditional, right? If I've got a if my kids have to please me by behaving well enough that I want them to keep them in my house, that's not the relationship of a father to children. That's a relationship of a employer to employee or master to slave. So if we get these two categories confused, we're going to end in a hopeless and despairing situation. But if we keep them straight and distinct, namely that God is pleased to have us as his children unconditionally, but he's also pleased insofar as we follow his bidding and like father, like sons are conformed into his image, then we're seeing things the way the scriptures see things. We're presenting them the way scriptures are presenting them. So here we have this promise and pledge that as children obey parents in everything, God looks down upon that and is pleased. Here's the converse, the flip side. And again, it's it's addressed just as in Ephesians, specific to fathers, but both parents here are undoubtedly in view. It's just that as the father is the head of the household, so also he is ultimately the one who is responsible. He has that extreme ownership of the family where if something's wrong, who's to blame? The same one who's the head, right? So, fathers, do not provoke your children. And that's as good a word as any in English. Um, I think in, uh, in Ephesians, maybe the, the word is different, and maybe it's a little bit more like anger or similar to that word embitter. But here, don't provoke your children. That is, don't cause your children to hate you, lest they become discouraged. And we remember from Ephesians, it's the father's task to raise the children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. So as we're doing that, as we're being their earthly fathers, we don't want to provoke them such that they become discouraged. That's at counter purposes. So here then is the second pairing, fathers and children or parents and children. And of course, following very tightly on this, verse 22, the third and final pairing, slaves obey in everything. By the way, interestingly, this is the same language that's used for children of parents. So slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And we saw that same adjective used in Ephesians. Earthly masters subtly pointing out what? Who is our heavenly master? Christ. And he's the heavenly master of earthly slaves and earthly masters. So Christ is over all, and thus both are rendering service to him, even as slaves serve masters, even as masters are kind to slaves. So slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, kind of an idiomatic phrase meaning about the same thing we'd mean by lip service, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Again now, fearing the Lord. You see how the Lord never leaves any one of these vocational pairs. He's always at the heart and center. So this was the story I told last week of being at the seminary and the gentleman coming in and saying, if you don't love people, you're in the wrong place. Well, people are the problem. If you go into the ministry saying, I'm going to love people because they're so lovable, you're not going to love them for very long. And the same is true in all our vocations. The same is true in our families. Same is true in our workplaces. Okay? So what is the beautiful freedom that frees us from this way of looking? It's that, it's that same message that Christ has for Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
Okay, so it's the love for Christ that sustains us. We could simply take that principle and import it into here. We'd be doing no violence to the text whatsoever. And say, it's as if Christ is saying to husbands and wives, do you love me? Then submit to your husband. Do you love me? Then love your wife and don't be embittered toward her. Children, do you love me? Then obey your parents. Fathers, parents, do you love me? Then don't provoke your children, but raise them in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, do you love me? Then obey your masters from sincerity of heart. And then masters, do you love me? And we're going to get to that next. But you see how this works? So love for Christ is enough to sustain us, whether it's the pastoral office or any of these other core vocations. Not love for people. Love for Christ who alone is worthy. And that redounds upon people and is put in service to other people. Okay, so we see that same theme here. Um, Fearing the Lord, end of verse 22. He continues with slaves. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. Oh, there it is. There's the proof text. As for the Lord and not for men. Now this too is like where Luther's God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does, can ring confusing in our ears. It It makes a lot of sense if you're in 16th century Lutheranism coming out of Roman Catholicism where, you know, all your works are done so that God will... Take note that your credits are more than your debits and let you off light in purgatory only a few million years and then into, into heaven you'll eventually go in some impossible age. Uh, then along comes Luther and says, God doesn't need your works, your neighbor does. And it's like, yes, oh, great. But we're not in that context, at least not here in Southern California. We're not in a legalistic context, really, but a lawless context. And so when I think our ears hear this language uh, in our context of, well, God doesn't need your works, your neighbor does, it's completely demotivating. (laughs) Because it's like, well, God doesn't care, is how that translates, whether you do it or don't do it, but your neighbor does. And it's like, yeah, but my neighbor's terrible. Guess it's optional. And obviously, that's nothing what Luther means in original context, but that is what those words of his taken out of his context and placed in ours can do. Here, I think, is a necessary corrective for us. Um, And Luther would say, yeah, friendly amendment, no doubt about it. Um, And that is that you are working, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's an entirely different emphasis. It's the emphasis that we've been talking about, where I'm not going to do this because I think my boss is worthy of it. I'm going to do this because God is worthy of it, and thus I'm going to do it uh, heartily. Heartily. Whatever you do, work heartily, so that it modifies uh, whatever you do. Whatever you do, do it with all you have, because it's done unto the Lord who is going to be well pleased with this. Not for men per se. It's done to men, but for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And again, that goes back to this idea of our being his sons, sons of the Father, and thus we are inheritors in his house. And we have this as our reward. But this renders vocation in our lives meaningful as well. Because if God doesn't care and if God doesn't need it and if God doesn't pay any attention to it, I mean, maybe even it, it becomes a, an item of self-righteousness and then something we should avoid entirely. If that's the case, then our vocations become empty and meaningless. But note that that's not at all what Paul is spelling out here. It's so meaningful that God pays attention. And because you are... A son, God will give you the son's reward, the inheritance. And of course, we could simply expand this with verses like, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name to a little child will by no means lose his reward. So Christ is very interested, not in keeping track of our sins, those he takes and drowns in the depth of the sea, and as he alone can do, forgets them all. But when it comes to those good things, those pleasing things that we have done, there he's absolutely scrupulous. He writes them all down and writes them all down in a book that he might reward us richly. Now, of course, that assumes that he's cleansing these 
works, excuse me, with the blood of his son and that they're acceptable to him in and through Christ. There's nothing perfectly pure that either you or I have ever done or will ever do. But cleansed by the blood of Christ, done in and through this great high priest of ours, they are in fact pleasing to God. And then he rewards them. Augustine has a phrase where he says something like, he, he being God, crowns his own works within us. That is to say, he gives us the Holy Spirit such that our very hearts are changed and we suddenly will and do in accordance with his desires and then God rewards us. So, we are in many respects along for the ride in this glorious graciousness of God. And that's not to negate our activity. If, if our activity were negated, if this just happened automatically or something, then Paul's wasting his ink penning this. So we are in fact engaged in this. These new wills that we have been given participate in this renewed activity, re-seeing our vocations the way God God does them, and then leaning in as his dear children, knowing that our reward is in fact going to be rich. If nothing else, the reward of knowing that we pleased our God and Father, who so loves us and is so gracious that he sends his son. Okay, so that takes us... um, Oh, not yet. We've got one more line. Yeah, you are serving the Lord Christ last part of verse 24. So again, look at that. Um, just outright. As, as slaves serve the masters, you are serving the Lord Christ. As employers serve their employees, might be a translation. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Now that's, that's Paul's... Um, it's Paul's warning shot. It's very much like the large catechism where it's like, yeah, uh, so even if you are saved, there, is, uh, there are temporal and eternal consequences pro and con for what you do and don't do. It's just a fact. I know that that's like weighty, but it's just a fact. And it's stated here outright in Scripture, and it's stated, of course, um, I think one of the very best Lutheran treatments of this is the large catechism where Luther is ever, ever saying this very thing. Okay, in 4.1, here you can see how arbitrary chapter breaks are. Why on earth is there? Did the editors hit the enter button there on the laptop and make it a new paragraph and a new chapter? Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That is, you want him to treat you justly and fairly and beyond that to be pleased with you and to be gracious to you. So then the implication is you do likewise. Okay, very frequently for, um, yeah, well, I think always for one is included. And then sometimes for two is included because it has this nice wrapping up effect. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We have here uh, prayers and vigil, being watchful. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, Paul being autobiographical here, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So praying for the apostles in context, praying for the pastoral office in ours. All right, so we have this admonition then to continue in prayer and vigil with thanksgiving and to pray for our leaders in the right-hand kingdom. All right, that's Colossians. So a little different than Ephesians, uh, mostly stripped down, mostly bare bones, but the same structure there and the same fundamentals there. Any questions, thoughts you have on this section? And then we'll get a breath of fresh air because we're going to take a totally different angle as we move into Titus. There's a hand all the way in the back. Yeah. Um, I just comment that uh, back to 
serve your neighbor mm -hmm. and how it's different today. Our neighbors might be fine, but there's plenty of service uh, available. They might not be fine too. I don't know, but because uh, I don't, our garages just go up and down. We don't see them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, but at any rate, there's plenty of service in the community uh, through service clubs, various things yeah. that you can do that I think you can uh, uh, fulfill that uh, uh, command. And there's there's lots of need. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, just a comment. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, there really is endless opportunity to serve our neighbor. Uh, I think I think the beauty of vocation, again, to backtrack maybe even to the first session where we laid a lot of the foundation, is to backtrack we, one of the most freeing things about the doctrine of vocation, the fact that we see these three pairings in Scripture repeated, is that these things are pleasing in God's sight. So, well and good, and may you go out and serve the community and serve your neighbor in whatever ways you see fit, and God be praised, and God be pleased, and everything else. But it is sufficient, it is God-pleasing in itself to simply fulfill these core vocations. Luther is so beautiful and so freeing here on this, because it's like you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a monk, you don't have to be a nun, you don't have to do these extravagant, extraordinary things to be pleasing in God's sight. I mean, I suppose in our context here, surrounded by American evangelicalism, you don't have to call your ministry a coffee ministry. You could just serve coffee, right? And you don't need to make it this super spiritual work of super arrogation that goes above and beyond what anything else is doing and is therefore worthy in God's sight. No, God drives us back to the absolute simplicity via his word a vocation here this is what i would have you do as husband wife parents children uh, slave and master and this is pleasing in my sight so it's beautifully wonderfully freeing in that respect and of course i mean i, I, I get kind of tired of myself saying this every week because it's a broken record but i'll say it again i mean there's no better place to find out how sinful you are also as you're looking at these things the small catechism teaches us oh what sh the question is what should i what should I confess to my pastor you know, when, I go to, when I go to confession? Consider your place in life, your station, your vocations, and now weigh and assess yourself according to the Ten Commandments. So, you don't know what to confess. You think on this long enough, you're going to have tons to confess. All right. So, all of this has to do with, with um, I mean, functions to reveal our sin and where we've fallen short, past, present, and where we undoubtedly will fall short in the future. But look, that's why St. Paul has woven Christ in and through all of it, so that he is there, even as we're rendering service to him, we're rendering service to the one whose hands still bear the nail marks, whose side still bears the spear mark, who is our redeemer and the one who saves us by grace, apart from our many failures, and instead of our many failures, dying to cover our many failures and sins. So all of that's at the heart of this, and it's also why I started us in Ephesians a bit before these tables and in Colossians a bit before these tables. So you can see that, I mean, Paul isn't using it precisely the way the catechism uses it. Paul isn't saying, hey, here's this mental game that God's playing so you feel really good and guilty about yourself, but don't worry about it, you're forgiven. It's not what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, hey, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. This is how God would have you live as his children saved by grace. That makes sense? Okay. Please. Well, <clears throat> considering that Dale isn't here, I want to ask two questions. All right. Stump the pastor. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, you're put you're gonna sit in his shoes? No, no. You're going to and be I, the you're I gonna be the Dale's advocate? No. <laughs> this won't stump you. Um, I I had a, a comment and then I was thinking in terms of vocation. I've seen this so much, where young women especially are called to do this for this organization and that organization until they're running around crazy helping their neighbor, and really their primary vocation is their husband and children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think it gets said on its ear all the time. I've seen it in our own family. I've seen it in my life, where yeah. your work, your running crazy trying to help everybody mm -hmm. and you're not 
helping those that are closest to you that yeah. relate to your vocation. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. So when, when the scriptures say that we are a royal priesthood, like I'm thinking of that's the language we find in First Peter, and it's like, okay, well, what does a priesthood do? Well, in part, it sacrifices, and it's the language of Romans 12. And so what are the essential, what is the essential shape and function of our daily duties, of our daily sacrifices as royal priests? And it's vocational. Now, where, and, and this is just so, our society is so anomalous in this respect that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this. I think the rest of the globe and historic world would have a hard time wrapping their minds around us. Where, for example, I, I don't know what the average marriage age is any longer, but it's probably way up in the high 20s, maybe even the low 30s. As we're going to see when we go to Titus, like you're an old man already or an old woman when you're in your 30s and 40s. Right. Uh, so... This is, this is quite a bit different. And you can see then, like, if that's the case, if you're getting married and having children in your mid or maybe later teens, and you're already a father or a mother at that time, okay, if you're single at that point, what is, what is the answer? The answer is, okay, you're still, you're, you're, you're calling now is to the church, if you don't have a husband or wife, if you're single, if you're virgin, your calling is to serve the church rather than a spouse. We can see Paul flesh that out. Now, that sounds strange to our ears, but it's true. You, you don't just say, okay, well, I'm, a, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anyone in the least. That's not my intention. You say, okay, I'm, maybe I'm 45 years old and my parents are, are deceased and I, I'm not married and I don't have kids, so I guess I'm just going to live for myself. That's like not the biblical way of looking at it. It would be like that's a waste of your time. That You're going to regret that um, because you're going to look back on your life and go, as we all do, I wish that I would have done more. <laughs> Nobody gets to heaven and looks back and goes, gosh, I really wish I would have done less. Uh, everybody... Yeah, as Luther says, as soon as you get up into heaven, it's like, gosh, if I had known all this, I would have been more bold. I would have risked more. I would have just been completely fearless in conducting my life. So that's, our, that's the universal reflection. Yeah, so this is, um, if, you're, if you're single, you're called to serve the church. And otherwise, as you're pointing out, Alice, you... Um, you're called to these immediate and primary vocations. That's the immediate. And, and if you're doing other stuff at the sacrifice of these primary vocations, then there's, a, there, there's an imbalance. There's something that you want to correct. You want to go back to these things that are actually pleasing toward God and these things that are actually going to enrich and push forward your family, which is enriching and pushing forward the gospel and society and everything all at once. Yeah, have you seen that? Um, I, I'm going to butcher it, but and I don't always love these. So, but the Babylon Bee had a headline that said something like, "Father of six wonders what he can do to make an in, impact for the kingdom of God." Right. So, I mean, it's just so indicative of the spirit of our age because it's like, okay, I got to make an impact out here, friend. Raise your children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord, and you've just made six Christians, and that multiplies generationally. So I think that that's kind of illustrative, at least, of this idea we have where it's like, hey, i got to be doing something that's quote-unquote meaningful and important. And God's like, no, go live a peaceable and quiet life. Here's your, here's your manual. <laughs> okay, part two. Yeah, please. Part two is, we've talked about this before, the guy on the corner with the sign, God bless. You know, give me, give me your money. I, I can't find a job, even though there's zillions of them out there. Um, I just have a hard time with it, because I know a lot of it is um, human trafficking. Yeah. I, I would say most of it, maybe. It's really trafficking, yeah. Yeah, and um, I just don't want to contribute to that. But you said to me once, 
you can't think of it that way. You give if your heart compels you to give. That might be the only time I was ever wrong. <laughs> Thank goodness. I've been worried about it. Yeah, so, no, I think, I mean, well, I'll try to defend myself. I may have said that. I've said a lot of dumb things. But, uh, you know, how I would, how I would more consider it is... Um, there is a sense in which we, we think, like, well, I'm not going to give this person anything because they're going to go use it on money. And there, I, I can't remember where it is. I'm too far out from it. But whenever I taught about this, like, 12 years ago or something, nice memory, by the way, uh, I think it's in Proverbs. It's like, who cares if you give a poor person money and he buys alcohol with it and takes a night of comfort? Don't you comfort yourself with what the Lord has given you? Right. So I think there's that spirit where... If we take that too far of like, I want to make sure I give it to this person because they're worthy of it. It's like, really? Are you worthy of the things that God has given you? So that's a poisonous and stingy, miserly kind of approach. And so I think that that, I would still remain critical of that. Okay, but where you suspect that it's a grift, you're not obligated as a Christian to give to a grift. I mean, this happened not long ago. Uh, I was exiting Avery. Uh, going south on the five, exited Avery. There's almost always people there. Really, like, not well-dressed, but, like, just well-put-together Hispanic woman. And she was asking for money. And, I mean, just, like, looked like the nicest woman on earth. And, I mean, my heart was moved. And I'm like, yeah, I want to, you know, I, if any if anyone needs money, it's surely this woman. And so just the way the light changed and everything, I stopped probably about five or six cars before the light. And I saw her grab money and then cruise across the street or across the exit. And then she was over in kind of this defunct parking lot. And a guy came up and she handed all the money to him. Now, there's the, you know, this is, there's the pimp, but we're not talking about, you know, sexual favors here. We're just talking about begging, but there's the trafficking, and that goes on all the time here. I mean, I had, I've, I've had a number of these circumstances. Mother's Day, I saw a young woman, couldn't have been more than her early 20s, pushing around a little tiny baby, and I was like, I drove past her because I was like, it's a grift, she was at Staters in the parking lot on Mother's Day, little baby asking for money. And I, I was like, this is a grift. And I drove past and I was like, you are so heartless. You're so ridiculous. Turn around and give her what's in your wallet right now. And I turned around and she jumped in the car of some dude, a Mercedes, and the baby got slung in the back and <laughs> off they went. And I was like, ah. So we're under no obligation to give where we think it's a grift. So balance those two things. <laughs> Yeah, it's really hard. I think, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons why our congregation, we choose to fund family assistance ministries, FAM, instead of having a food bank or handouts or money or anything like that. Because as soon as you give out to one, lo and behold, there's like two others the next week and five others the week after that. And then you're getting phone calls about paying for hotel rooms and on and on. And yeah, it just... It doesn't work. It's, a, it's an abusive, grifting kind of thing that takes place here in our context. So we're under no obligation to give to that as Christians. But we don't want to let our hearts become hard either. That's the danger there. Okay, anything else? Oh, yes, please. Uh, I can't help but think of the analogy of relationships we have to that of a football team. The man who gives the call, I guess, the coach, plus the quarterback, and he gets, everybody's eyes are on the quarterback. And people follow his directions. Uh, Usually the quarterback gets the Heisman Trophy. But I'm sure that the quarterback is most uh, grateful for the guards who don't let him get sacked every time he gets uh, Mm. to carry the ball. Or I love Reggie Bush because... He got the Heisman for being a running back, and he made the accomplishments possible for the quarterback. Huh. And the quarterback can't get anything done unless he has people that are working with him, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I had no idea you are such a football fan, by the way. <laughs> you talk sometimes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, of course. But uh, he was a, a Penn State fan. The, what, right, Penn State? That's why we were not speaking terms. 
Yeah, so, so this is the way vocation works. You know, the only, the only reason I can get in my car and drive to church and preach the gospel today is because there's everybody else doing all kinds of vocations. Where'd I get the gas? Where'd I get the car? Where'd I get the road? You know, and on and on it goes. It's all interwoven and intertied together, and God sees that. And so, he, God could, you know, it's like, it's like we kind of talked about it, and maybe it was a little insensitive of me last week. Oh, well. Uh, but this, this idea that God doesn't, so much, God doesn't care nearly as much as we do if you're a slave or a master, if you're a greeter at Walmart or a high-powered attorney. God doesn't care nearly as much as we do. It's a short-term assignment. And it's all interwoven together, as Paula, that's your analogy. It's all interwoven together. And God is looking at the individual and saying, yeah, are you doing what you can in that, in that vocation, in that calling? And again, this has nothing to do with salvation. It's not like he's predicating, okay, you've got to get at least 70% or else I won't let you into purgatory. That's not, no, we're in an entirely different category here. Uh, to his Christians, he's saying, you're already in, you're already my child. And then he's looking and saying, hey... If, if you want to know that your life has meaning and purpose, here's what I've called you to, and here's how to do it, and I'll pay attention and I'll care. I'll number all the hairs on your head and bottle every tear and pay attention to every cup of, is everything that is so insignificant as a cup of cold water given to a child that you didn't even know you did, right? I'm not losing track of any of it, because I love you. You're my children. So that's the beautiful, freeing thing we have in vocation. Okay, so far so good. Any other questions? Any other very good. Um, let's, uh, we've got five minutes left. Let's just skip over to Titus real quick, and I'll introduce it. And then next week, we'll spend our time here and maybe one other place, and then we'll wrap this series up and be on to something different. All right, so we're going to go to Titus chapter 2. And if you're in the study Bible, added bonus, that's page 2090, if that's easy for you to find. So Titus chapter 2, and we're not going to do much by way of context here because the letter is straightforward. Paul is writing to a young pastor named Titus, and this pastor named Titus is going to be in charge of uh, assigning elders, pastors, to various congregations. And so... Um, right past the introduction in chapter 1, you, you're going to see the subheading qualifications for elders, that's pastors, and you're going to see how that vocation then ties in with the core or primary vocations that we've been focusing on. And if we look at chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see a really interesting construction and presentation because we're going to see St. Paul tell Titus to tell congregations <laughs> to do these things. So, chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, this is Paul speaking to Titus, and if by anything, ex- by, like by extension, it would be the pastoral office, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, that language of sound there means healthy or balanced, which I think is an interesting way to think about doctrine. Is doctrine healthy? So, with sound or healthy doctrine. Now, when we hear the word doctrine, what do you think of? You think of like, okay, let's get the Trinity correct, Let's get our Christology correct. Let's get our grace correct. And we think in these abstract theological categories, whenever we hear the word doctrine, what does Paul here think about? Vocation. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, this is great. This is the uh, presbytos. And when we get to older women, it's going to be presbytidos. So you have the presbyteros and the presbyteros. And then with the younger men you're going to, and the younger women, you're going to have the younger women be, being the neas and the neo, what is it? Uh, neoteros. Neoteros. So you're going to have these four categories. Old men and old women. Young men and young women. 
Alright, so verse 2, older men. Now, skip over, if you're in your study Bible, skip over to chapter 2, verse 2, and look what it says about older men. By virtue of age and experience, they serve as natural role models for younger men. People who reach age 80 were regarded as remarkable. No offense to anyone in here. The median age of death... There's a lot of miracles. No, (laughs) there's a lot of miracles here at faith. Uh, The median age of death, according to inscriptions left on tombs of the upper classes, was 46 and a half years for men. So elders were men in their 30s or 40s. Most of us are just growing out of boyhood by then in our culture. Elders were men in their 30s or 40s, though most would not have an exact reckoning of their age. Ah, alas, birthdays weren't what they are today. Okay, so older men, (laughs) and by that maybe we mean 30 and above, who knows. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. This is kind of interesting, especially in American culture, because honorable, grave, serious. Those are parallel adjectives. So we don't want to be 50-year-old Disney characters. We do, Peter Pan is not what Paul has in mind for a presbutas, for an older man. All right, so sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, here's that same word, healthy, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, which is hupomene, which is um, usually translated as endurance. So this is like one of the ultimate words of the New Testament, endurance. Which is true. Like, if you've ever met uh, an older man in the church, one of the greatest qualities he has is patience and endurance and perspective and just this sense of, like, yeah, this isn't that big of a deal. We're, we're going to get over this. This is a bump in the road, not a hill to die on, you know. So that's the kind of wisdom of older men, presbytas. All right, now we're not going to leave you out, older women, presbytidas. Uh, so, Very quickly, let me just touch on that. I know we're now running a minute late. Hang on. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. The language there of reverence is the language of the temple. So almost like sacred in behavior. The language of the priesthood, the language of the garments. Reverent in behavior. Not slanderers. Guess what it is? Diabolus. Not devils. Uh, Sorry, I'm the only one that finds that funny. (laughs) Reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach. Look at that. Teach what is good. And so train the neos, the young women. All right. And there's as good a place as any to break. So next week we'll hit the young women and the younger men as well as slaves and masters once more. The Lord be with you.